Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that would totally buy a bra at a yard sale. I'm your host, Amanda. Today, we are going to finish our discussion about excess inventory with Janine. On the last episode, we focused on how retailers and brands end up with too much inventory. Sometimes it's because they bought heavily into the wrong trends, like straw fedoras. Oh, I can't even say that word out loud without making a fist. Or a red beret. I don't have as many hard feelings about those. <laughs> Other times, it's because the return rate was a lot higher than planned or anticipated. As a junior high math team captain, that's an interesting topic to me. Because while publicly traded retailers and brands are required to report the revenue, aka sales, they aren't necessarily speaking to the return rate. And these return rates can often hover somewhere between 30 to 50% for e-commerce. Let's do an exercise involving return rate. Okay, let's say total sales revenue for this pretend brand was $50 million, but the return rate is 50%. So that means that 50% of the $50 million worth of products sold was returned. So that's $25 million in product. So $25 million in product was returned. That means that really, when all is said and done, the net product sales were actually $25 million. And remember, we're saying that our sales revenue was $50 million. So that's a huge difference, right? In the days of yore, when most stuff was bought in real actual stores, brick and mortar, as you learned in the e-commerce episodes with Kim, the return rate would tend to be more like 10 to 20%. And to be honest, 20% would be an extreme anomaly. So reporting this stuff just wasn't as important. But now, as an investor... Wouldn't you want to know if half the inventory was coming back? You certainly would want to think about that if you were the planner trying to plan the sales and how much inventory we needed to support it, right? Other causes of excess inventory included sales that didn't meet expectation, possibly because the executives were pushing for growth that just wasn't achievable. Another cause of excess inventory that can add up is the lack of solid inventory controls in the warehouse and stores. Remember how we kept talking about stuff just being thrown on a pile? That's what I like to call a death by a thousand paper cut situation where it's like one unit here, two units there. Suddenly, a few years later, it's 100,000 units, as we've learned. Today, we're going to talk about how retailers and brands get rid of the excess inventory, as in how do they get out of this problem? It's not easy. Most retailers start with markdowns, aka giving the customers a deal. And yes, this can move a lot of inventory out the door, but there's a price to this that at first is more figurative, but eventually turns into literal. You see, markdowns, clearance events, promos, these things become addictive for retailers. No, you didn't hear me wrong. I do know that deals, deals, deals are addictive to customers. God knows I'm one of them but they're also addictive to retailers. Why? Because they produce huge, huge sales numbers. I mean, think about Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Retailers do more and more. They expand the sales period every year because these shopping holidays drive tons of sales. We're talking the biggest shopping days of the entire year here. But these promos aren't isolated to the holiday season, right? We know that. I've been in meetings where we're talking about how slow sales are, and we start brainstorming deals we could offer. You know, like, okay, how about free shipping on our orders? Yeah, that'll, that'll convert some people, right? Okay, what about this? I have a great idea. Let's pick a carefully selected group of items, 
to be fair, we'll be choosing them only because we have a lot of inventory on them and they aren't moving fast. So we'll be killing two birds with one stone. And then we'll promote to the customer 30% off this carefully curated collection. That sounds pretty premium, right? Okay. Or what if I have it? The internet tells me next week is National Donut Day. Let's run a promo on everything that's round in shape. Ooh, let's promo everything that is pink because donuts come in pink boxes. Okay, wait a minute. I know this is a while off, but let's remind ourselves to send out a deal for Mother's Day. Or, hey, you know what? Singles Day is a huge shopping holiday in Asia. We should just start doing it too. I mean, why not, right? It'll be, it'll be international of us. And so on. I mean, these are all conversations I've had, guys. I did not make this up. I wish I were this creative. This is not a work of fiction. <laughs> but here's the deal. When you depend on promos and rando fake holiday deals to drive sales, you move through even more inventory, especially the desirable inventory even faster. Like, to be honest, the fugly stuff still won't sell. It's always the good stuff that sells. I mean, you know it. Think about when you shop these deals. You already know the brands, silhouettes, trends that you want to buy into, right? So you you run out of all the good stuff, right? You run through it a lot faster. So then you ask brands to deliver more new stuff, more new seasons like pre-fall and resort or random capsules that are completely unnecessary. I mean, I can't tell you as a buyer how many of these emails I receive from showrooms and brands on a regular basis. Like, hey, can you can you come in and see the new collection? And I'll be like, what? I just saw you last month. And they'll be like, yeah, but this is our new collection inspired by the desert. I mean, it's it's just always so random like that. So the brands create new deliveries for you and you bring it in. And then the one year anniversary of that big donut themed promo creeps up and you realize that you can't sell less this year. You have to what we call in the industry comp that promo. So you have to run another donut day promo. Maybe this year it's even bigger. It's 30% off all things that are round or pink or hmm. let's just add some crochet clothing that's on the site because that stuff has holes like donuts. I don't know. The sale's great, right? It's even bigger than the year before. It's so successful. In year three of the donut promo, maybe you're actually developing pink round crochet stuff in advance. You can get cheaper pricing and therefore make a greater profit. So the system keeps moving, right? More and more stuff is made, more and more promos and endless one day sales, more and more people buy stuff they don't really need and more and more stuff fills up our homes until we move it to the trash can or maybe the Goodwill donation box. I hate it. Ah. Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> With that, let's get into the episode. I'll be back at the end to talk a little bit more about the other ways brands deal with excess inventory. Destroying it. Burning it. Burying it. Oh, God. I'm seriously getting all riled up again just thinking about it. So... Stay tuned to the end for more of that. <laughs> now that we know how you can end up with all this inventory, uh, how do brands and retailers deal with it? Step one, we have the product in the stores. It's on the website. It's in the warehouse. This is like a multi-pronged approach of reducing both what we have right now and what we have on order. Basically... I, this is like a hard one to explain, I guess, and you can jump in here, Janine, but your current inventory and how much you have is closely linked to your sales plan. And both of these two things influence how much you're allowed to bring in in the future. So basically, 
if you miss your sales plan for this month, it means you have extra inventory, right? Because you didn't sell everything you planned to sell to get to that number. So now you're sitting on extra inventory, but oh my God, like next month more stuff's going to come in and the month after that and the month out of that. So your planner will pull your receipts down, basically say, hey, based on you missing sales, we're going to we're gonna cut your budget for the next few months. And in that case, you might have to cancel orders or move them around. And that's kind of the first way you sort of mitigate this wastefulness. Do you think I did a good job of explaining that? Yeah. It's like, it's so complicated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea being is that, okay, we missed our sales plan for this month. So we have more inventory than we expected to have. So looking forward to the future, in theory, we need less inventory because we have enough already. We don't need more. Like you don't need to go up to the counter for seconds because you didn't finish what's on your plate already, basically. That idea works in theory. And whenever I'm sort of like doing trainings or something about inventory movement, I always refer to the pile of inventory. So (laughs) basically that's the, the concept of that is saying like your pile of inventory is already big enough. You don't need a bigger pile. You have enough in your pile to to do the sales that you need to do. However, some people may argue, and I feel like the buying team often makes this argument. (laughs) I know I was about to jump in. I know what you're going to (laughs) say. That I need that future inventory or we need that future inventory in order to drive sales because my pile of inventory that I have right now is crappy. Like, She doesn't want the stuff that's available for sale in my current pile. I need the new shiny future things in order to to drive more sales. So, and that is actually a legitimate argument because, I mean, without, without knowing in this like hypothetical situation, why you missed your sales, it could be a variety of reasons, but that is, that is a legitimate argument. If truly the inventory that you have right now isn't working you may still need to bring in more new inventory to drive sales because the current inventory that you have um, isn't, isn't productive. And so oftentimes, even though you have too much inventory, it's still necessary to continue to buy more, even though that seems sort of counterintuitive. So yeah, I think you did it. That was a good job explaining that. Okay, good. And to explain kind of what like on the buyer side of what Janine's saying about like, well, this current inventory isn't going to sell. So we need to bring in more. We can use the hat disaster as a good example. So we buy 10,000 units of straw fedoras and they're for spring and summer and they don't sell. I mean, because, you know, the trend is over. But even more importantly, they're definitely not going to sell when fall comes. I mean, because they're not the right season. So it would be pointless for if, if Janine is my planner to say, hey, uh, because your fedoras didn't sell, you have plenty of inventory, so we're, I would need you to cancel your all of your fall on order, right? Because the fall on order is is totally different product. It's going to be beanies and berets and knit other knit hats, things that are more cold weather focused. So in that situation, you wouldn't cut your future receipts because you need that stuff. And these fedoras don't become more relevant or even stay at the same level of relevant, right? So in that situation, you have to think about the seasonality of the product. Now, if the straw fedora disaster had happened early in the season, so like maybe in February or March when we first delivered spring product and I had a ton of other spring product coming over the next few months, we might talk about canceling some of that. 
in the early parts of my career, I was always, I don't know, I was like too meek and I didn't have the experience to really argue back and cite examples. So I'd be like, okay, yeah, let's just cancel it. Fine. But in my experience since then, I have seen how buying the wrong thing and then cutting off the receipts down the road to mitigate the inventory makes you just end up like missing tons more sales because you don't have anything new that might work to replace that. And so in that situation, I might say like, okay, Janine, well, like, what if we cut the receipts in half or like I cut the orders in half and if any of that new stuff comes in and works really well, then maybe I can chase back into the balance of units knowing that now we can salvage this hat business because otherwise what we would be saying is the fedoras are flop. I guess hats are a flop from now on too. Right. And so, But it's also, once again, it's like a gamble because maybe the other hats I have coming are also a nightmare. You know, maybe they're all just different fedoras, right. you know, it's, it's, it's 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 very complicated, and once again, you have to take that combination of like data and experience and knowledge of the trends, and kind of figure out where does the right decision lie. And you still might be wrong. You're always wrong. You're always wrong <laughs> in one way or another. So I said a few minutes ago, this is like a multi prong approach. So that's the first prong: is let's stop the bleeding. Like let's not have even more inventory come in and pile up. And as we've said, that you know it's 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 smart, right? Because also. If it turns out that no one wears hats anymore and that's just the end of hats as we know it for a year or two, you don't need more that are going to have to go to a landfill. So in that way, it kind of makes sense. But the other prong is everybody's favorite, which is markdowns, right? Because we got to figure out, I use this phrase sometimes and it's dark. I say, well, what price for ugly? Basically, (laughs) what, what price can something undesirable become desirable? It's it's what markdowns really are. (laughs) It totally is what markdowns really are. Yeah. So yeah. So markdowns basically is is just taking a reduction in the price. So you know this thing was fifty dollars. Now we mark it down to forty dollars or thirty five dollars. Will it sell now? (laughs) And markdowns are actually part of what we what we refer to in terms of the product life cycle is actually a normal part of the product life cycle. Some something sells out fully before it goes to markdown, that's great, but it's still pretty common to take things to markdown and acceptable common and like happy to take things to markdown after they've sold the majority of their units and like it's kind of size broken, like there's only like two extra smalls and like, you know, one medium and like, you know, three extra larges left. And so you're like, okay, like this thing's at the end of its life. It did its thing. And now to get rid of these like few kind of like PC units at the end, we'll take it to a discount to incentivize people to buy these like last units. So that's how markdowns work in a regular healthy product lifestyle. But oftentimes when there's just too much inventory overall, we take things to markdown to incentivize the customer to buy it. You'll see markdowns typically go to like 20 or 30% off at first, 40 or 50% off after that, and then 60 or 70% off after that. We usually expect them to sell out, you know, between those, you know, th- that little cadence or whatever across maybe six or eight weeks or something like that. And then you would you would expect to see that as the prices go lower and lower, we sell more and more units of this thing, right? Like, Price low, demand high, right? But sometimes you have something that's just fugly 
and nobody nobody <laughs> wants scientific her. word that's like the industry word that's what we call it <laughs> ugly <laughs> nobody wants it at whatever price um i have this specific special occasion dress that was like sky blue satin that had a cape attached to it oh i know this dress do you know this dress I remember seeing it on Super Markdown and being like, do I, do I need that? <laughs> okay. I think it anyway. also came in black. Uh, yes. Yes. Like, I think uh, it had like a star print or something on yeah. the black. Um, <laughs> and so not that many people need this thing. Even, even what? at twenty two ninety nine, you know, not that many people need this thing. And so invariably you will have these things that even if you take the deep markdowns, um, you're still, you're still not getting rid of the inventory. And so, as I mentioned before, markdowns can be a healthy part of the business. You're just, you're selling off these like, you know, final few units or whatever. You're selling them at a, a, you know, a bit of a discount, but you're not, you're not hemorrhaging money um, over these things. But when we think about the sky blue cape dress, that was probably, I'm going to think the cost to produce that was probably easily $25, if not potentially more. And so if I'm selling it at twenty two ninety nine or fifteen ninety nine or whatever it is to just get this thing gone, I'm losing money on on every single unit that I sell. And so when you have these fugly items, you're gonna lose money on those and you're gonna lose money on them materially. Like you're gonna lose money on the whole style. Whereas if you had a healthy style that just sold a few units at markdown, sure you might you might lose a little bit of profit there. But if you have something that's we call it a dog in the industry. <laughs> if you have something that's truly a dog, then you're going to lose money on that thing entirely. Um, and you may even try to sell it at markdown and still not sell out of the inventory, which is wild. And the other thing, Amanda mentioned this when we were doing the notes, if you have something that you sell it at markdown at 20 or 30, 40, 50% off even, the customer can still return it. <laughs> and so yes. you may sell this thing, ship it to the stupid customer, and then get that piece of shit back. Oh, they might return but, it. But somehow like a month later too, when you're like, yeah, we finally got rid of those cape dresses. Oh my God. And it's just like, <sighs> it's, yeah. it's mind blowing. And so there's a tactic that retailers reuse in terms of uh, labeling something as final sale. And that's typically when it's 60, 60% off or more. And then it's non-returnable. So then it's like, you bought this, you bought it at a huge discount. This thing is your problem now. This is no longer our problem. This is your problem now. You own it. If you don't like it, you can sell it, resell it online. You can take it to Goodwill or Crossroads or whatever you're going to do with it. But it's, it's no longer our problem. So I think that's that's a, another tactic. Um, but I think it's important to remember that even with doing markdown business, markdown business done right, you're still profitable. Markdown business done wrong, you're losing money. And then even if you do a markdown business, you can still have excess inventory that nobody wants to buy. Absolutely. And I, I mean, my advice for everyone is to be super wary of things that are listed final sale. I mean, for one, your level of disappointment or the I guess the possibility of disappointment is probably significantly higher because if it's reached this point and no one wants it, 
something's going on, right? Like maybe it all got returned because it fits poorly or it snags or something. And so you want to be cognizant of that. I will only buy something on final sale if it's something that I actually tried on in real life and I liked. Yeah. And it fit me well and I felt good about it because otherwise it's in your house, it's wasted. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to give it to the Goodwill? You know, like, are you going to try to sell it on Poshmark? No one's going to buy it because they already knew they could have gotten it on final sale from somewhere else. And so it it just switches the liability to your house. It takes it away from the retailer and now it's your core problem. And I, I, I really hate that. It's important to remind everyone of, or at least bring up, is it's something that we talk about internally when we talk about Markdown. And it's kind of a problem industry-wide is... If you become a brand that's known for marking tons of stuff down all the time and going 30, 50, 70, 80% off eventually, people are going to stop buying stuff at full price. And I mean, when I look at places like Macy's or JCPenney, like this is what happened to them. This is why their business is bad because now their customer is hooked on the deal and will never buy anything at full price. And so they have to constantly push the deals even harder to get that customer in the door. So it's risky. It's like it sounds like markdowns are like the way you fix all your problem, but it's 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 not. It's no. It can create its own set of problems. Yeah, especially if you have. I mean, if especially when you're shopping online, I think it's actually for a customer, it's actually easier to shop markdowns online than shop markdowns in a store. If you've been to even Nordstrom, their sales section, I always feel like is fairly well organized, but it's just chaos. Um, shopping anything in the sales section because it's like going to Ross or something. It's just everything's <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But online, you can actually filter through things pretty easily. You can filter by size. You can filter by color. You can filter by product. Like it's really easy to shop, shop a sales section online. And if you have a really robust sales section, why would somebody, if they can buy a cute, I'm just going to say like lace black dress at Markdown, why would they buy this? Why would they buy the lace dress at full price? Right. And so Mm -hmm. we use this term in planning or whatever, where you're saying the Markdown business is eroding the full price business because the more Markdowns that you have available for sale, the less the customer is going to want to shop the full price stuff because you have so much stuff that's available at a discount and you're just feeding this frenzy um, and so then that means the full price stuff you're you're not selling as much of it. So then you're gonna end up, you're gonna end up backing up an inventory, and you're gonna have excess inventory of the full price stuff, which invariably will lead to markdown. And then you have this just like really vicious cycle. A totally vicious cycle. So some brands, um, luxury brands included, they will choose not to mark things down, and they will just hold the inventory, which is crazy. So Amanda's going to talk a little bit about that. First, I'm going to talk about one more thing about markdowns, just another like really disturbing fact. So remember at the top of the episode when I talked about all that burned H&M inventory, I think it was like $4.3 billion in 2018. $4 billion of that, so basically almost all of it, was already marked down several times and nobody still bought it. So I just like want to underscore again that like, Markdowns are not the easy fix to your over inventory problem, right? So as Jenny mentioned, a lot of brands don't mark stuff down. It kind of goes back to this idea of like erosion of sales, but also a kind of erosion of the brand image. So in 2017, Burberry destroyed $36.8 million worth of its own merchandise. That's a lot, a lot of stuff. 
And of course, this got out. The brand admitted in its annual report that demolishing goods was just part of its strategy to preserve its reputation of exclusivity. And they stood by that when this hit hit the press. Like they were like, hey, this is, you know, this is how we keep our brand like luxurious, basically. This didn't go very well for brewery, as you might have guessed. There was a lot of outrage. Um Customers were boycotting, and members of the UK Parliament demanded that laws be created to crack down on this kind of waste. So then Burberry had to stop. It was that was kind of when they were like, uh, "We get it, you're mad. We don't care. Oh wait, there's going to be laws. Okay, maybe we'll stop." But I think it's important to call out that just because Burberry got caught doesn't mean they're the only brands that are doing this. There are other brands that do it pretty regularly, like Louis Vuitton and Nike. And uh, to be honest. A lot of other brands are doing it too that we don't know about. Yeah, I actually, when this story came out, I was like, y'all, everybody does this. I mean, not everybody, but like, this is a really common, this is really common. It's not really common. It's not pretty, but it's really common because it's just an easy way to just get rid of stuff that it's like, we'll go into this, but it's expensive actually to get rid of stuff that you don't want to sell. And so literally burning it is super efficient, easy, fast, cheap way to get rid of excess inventory. And I'm not, I'm not like saying this is okay by any means, but I was just like, oh, this is every, like, this is way, this is very, this is fairly common. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I saw like you commented in the notes that like, this is really, really common in beauty. Which makes sense because they're also coming up against like product expiration dates that aren't just figurative but are actually literal and legal. So what are they going to do with all that stuff? You know, you you can't hold it around. Well, and the other thing about beauty, which is kind of obvious when you think about it. So first of all, any anything that you that is sold at like Sephora or in a department store, Clinique, whatever, all of those brands. Those are never those are never marked down, ever, as ever. as you as you know. <laughs> yeah, like Sephora, you're like, ooh, I get ten percent off, like yay. Um, so there's there's no discounting there, and the main reason they do that is to maintain the integrity of the items, and the, and the brand, and the other reason it's so common in beauty is that all of that stuff is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly cheap to produce. Incredibly cheap to produce, but the, as we mentioned in the last episode, the minimum order quantities are huge. And so when you have a, you know, evergreen color eyeshadow or I don't know, some, and uh, yeah, and even like foundations and stuff come in so many shades or whatever. Um, but all this stuff is really, really cheap to produce. So it's like, I would think like an eyeshadow costs probably like a dollar maybe or two dollars to produce i mean i would guess i would guess that the like packaging and the like makeup tray palette thing costs way more than the actual eyeshadow itself oh yeah totally and so this stuff is just so cheap that it's just like the, the the easiest way to deal with it is just to incinerate it and i actually will i interviewed at a beauty company who shall remain nameless for their own sake (laughs) but a but a beauty brand that people would recognize is totally middle you know middle of the road for the beauty industry and when I interviewed there they said they specifically asked me how do I you know what are my tactics for managing inventory 
specifically when, you know, they don't do markdowns or whatever. And they had recently incinerated 1 million units of inventory (laughs) because it had filled up an entire warehouse that they were paying rent on. And they, similar to how Amanda was saying, somebody at at the warehouse will put these extra units into a pile in the corner. This was, this entire warehouse was their corner and they had filled an entire warehouse with excess inventory that they're then paying rent on to store this inventory. And then at some point somebody just said, why are we storing all of this? Like, what are we even going to do with it? And because of the sheer quantity of the number of units, it, it was an unwieldy amount of inventory to deal with. And so like, what are you going to do with a million units of anything? Like, I don't even know. And so they just incinerated it. And like, he said that to me, so matter of fact, because it is common. And he was like, how, how are you going to help this not ever happen again? And to be honest, when we talked about the business model, this was a brand that sold to Sephora. Sephora was their biggest. uh, They also sold in department stores, but Sephora was their biggest channel that they sold to. And they said that the the business, the way that the business and the relationship with Sephora worked is preseason or like ahead of, ahead of production. Sephora would say, okay, these are our picks, um, for what we, what we want to buy for the upcoming season or whatever time period. And so they'd say, cool, like, okay, Sephora is going to buy this. And then, you know, certainly they had their department store as a, their department store counters as a channel, but Sephora was really their main, um, main channel. So if Sephora is going to buy these things, um, you know, we're going to produce these in really high quantity, but for these other things that Sephora is not going to buy, we'll produce really small quantities. And then time would pass. And so, but there, there was no actual formal commitment to that inventory from Sephora. And so then the time would come where Sephora would actually write their orders and they'd be like, oh yeah, actually we don't want that mascara anymore. Oh, that's <laughs> so rough. And there's no commitment. Right, right. They had just said, like, that's what they wanted to buy. There was no commitment at that standpoint. So then they would now have, you know, 15,000 units of a mascara that they were planning to sell at Sephora and that now they, they they have no channel for anymore. And similarly, how ModCloth worked with our vendors back in the day, this Sephora was such an important relationship to them that they're not going to hold it against Sephora and and mess with the relationship because that 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 the relationship with Sephora was critical to their success as a business. Mm-hmm. And so they're not going to be like, "Hey, but you owe me. You you said you were going to buy that mascara. You owe me for that mascara or like, you know, throw me, you know, throw me some money here for the mascara cuz like Sephora can just do whatever they want to do." Right. And so when they were asking me like, "How how should we avoid this?" I was like, I don't know, dude. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I think you should try to find some other ways to sell. Like they sold at Ulta and they sold, you know, obviously they sold at their department stores and they were trying to starting to sell online and whatever. I mean, my, I would be like diversify that portfolio, right? Like (laughs) try to find more places you can sell Mm -hmm. so you're not so dependent on this one retailer and blah, blah, blah. But even still, that just was a fact of how, the business oper- operated that was unavoidable to them. And so I didn't have any like genius ideas for how they could 
how could they could avoid getting in this situation because they had like they had to produce so far ahead because of just the way that cosmetics works um and that's why they asked sephora like before they go into production what are you interested in buying and then sephora would say and then once it actually came time for them to commit and actually buy it say okay well actually we changed our mind on a couple of things and and it's important to keep in mind that like this is only one brand that sells to like Sephora and Ulta and department stores. And if you walk into an Ulta or a Sephora, I mean, there's like hundreds of brands in there. So probably right. without any of us knowing this is happening exponentially more than we, than we're aware of that all of these cosmetic and beauty brands are really struggling. I mean, now, especially too, because you can't even go to Sephora and try makeup on. I'm sure that's affecting sales. So this is probably a cascading effect. And I do think a lot about what's going to happen to all the extra stuff that no one's buying right now. Like that actually keeps me awake at night sometimes. You know, where's where's that all going? Totally. Because we can't wear bathing suits or six-month-old uh, mascara in December. Like it's, it's, it's definitely a problem. So – once again, this goes back to this idea of like, you know, markdowns don't fix everything. And and a lot of brands also think that they're really damaging. Uh, in, the, in the situation in which the brand thinks they're more damaging, it's really because they don't want to destroy the sense of exclusivity that their brand entertains. And while this is often a luxury-based issue, it's not all just luxury that feels this way. And I've definitely worked for retailers that were like, we don't want to take markdowns. We're only going to do it twice a year because we want our brand to be aspirational. This is common. The first time Janine told me this story about this cosmetic brand, I said, well, why don't they just sell it to like TJ Maxx or Ross or something? Because they sell makeup in those places. And she was like, well, that would be brand damaging. It would put it in the hands of even more people. And, you know, to be honest, that's true. It could train people fans of these brands to just go look at TJ Maxx and not buy directly from Sephora or Nordstrom or other places where they would pay full price. I think it's also really important to take a step back and and this is like a heady subject in itself, but the retail price of a luxury product and once again that could be like a Chanel bag or like some eyeshadow you buy at Sephora. It has nothing to do with its actual value. If if that wasn't demonstrated enough by talking about eyeshadow maybe not even costing $1 to make, then I don't know what else is, right? <laughs> it's really important to protect the exclusivity of these brands because that's where the real value of the product lies. I mean, that's what marketing is, right? It makes you feel like something is so special that'll make you feel special, right? You'll you'll be someone by buying a $30 eyeshadow, even if that eyeshadow only costs a dollar to make. <laughs> like it's just so crazy. And it's like, you know, it's it's a big part of capitalism. You know, as I mentioned earlier, like this happens a lot. It's happening right now. We don't know about it. There's like a veil of secrecy. I'm sure if we dug enough into the internet, there are companies who specialize solely in incinerating inventory. Oh, God. I'm sure, right? We could probably do some investigative reporting and find this out. Uh, there are definitely companies that specialize in destroying clothing in non-incineration ways. Most of those are overseas. So there is like this, I don't know, like secret industry, if you will, that just destroys stuff. And that's how they make their money. Oh, God. 
maybe I maybe I want to get into that that career path because I feel like they're about to have a big moment this year. Yeah. Sounds depressing. <laughs> so depressing. So, okay. What if stuff doesn't sell at Markdown? Like, what if we're a brand that sells stuff at Markdown and we have like no problem with that because we like don't care about whatever this amorphous idea of like brand identity is? Okay, well, at this point, it's still better for us to try to recoup some of the cost, even if it's only a few cents, because the next step after that would be paying someone to take it away. So we'd be losing even more money. So one thing a brand could do is sell their excess inventory to an off-price retailer like Ross or TJ Maxx, uh, Zulily. I don't think the guilt exists anymore, but I think they're probably ripe for comeback right now. <laughs> or even I feel like, I mean, there's all these other off-price, I think even Group Groupon you can like buy clothes on. Oh yeah, Groupon goods. Anyway, so you get the idea. Either a Ross or a TJ Maxx or it's yeah. it's it's ilk online or like Nordstrom Rack yes if you read the economic forecasts or people who in the industry who predict these like consumer trends like this is going to be the next year or two is going to be like their moment to shine but to be honest these businesses have already been doing really well so off price as it's called that's the industry term for it is a method of retailing where brand name goods are sold to consumers for less than the retail price. So generally 30 to 70% below the standard retail price. There's a cool startup version of this called Cara Cara. They're online only. And they actually sell like cool brands and like indie designers and even some sustainable brands. So I recommend checking them out. Uh, A lot of my friends who work or own really cool clothing brands have been struggling with like a lot of cancellations, which we've talked about before, and they've been liquidating some of their stuff through that site. So this is not a paid commercial. I just (laughs) wanted to call it out because I feel like, you know, when I talk about off price with a lot of my friends, they're like, oh, there's nothing there for me. I don't want BB or BCBG clothes. And I'm like, no, but wait, there's this other idea out there. It's important to remember, though, that these retailers aren't going to take just anything. They're not going to be like, oh, you've got $4.3 billion worth of inventory. We'll take it. They are experts and they want to buy stuff that their customer will actually want to buy. So they look for specific brands and we're going to we're going to say like more mass brands that are really well known. So they're not going to be carrying these like niche brands and they're going to want trends that make sense to their customer. So like a, an evening gown with a cape on it, probably, probably not something that they're going to want. They're going to want stuff that people can wear to work or church or you know, that you don't have to have a complex and elaborate like style, personal style to uh, wear. Uh, And they're also not going to want anything that has quality issues or is, you know, has a fit problem or anything like that. Because, you know, their customers trust them and they don't want to destroy that trust just as like your brand doesn't want to do that either. So if they do decide to take some of your excess they will demand a cost that is like pennies on the dollar, right? Because yeah. it's got to be profitable for them. And those margin targets that we've talked about in previous episodes are similar, if not even more aggressive for them. So they want to get this at a low cost because remember, they're not going to sell it at the price you were trying to sell it at. So it has to be cheap for them to still be profitable at like a half or 70% off price. I, we've kind of talked about this in the past, but I think it's really important to remind everyone that a lot of the product you see in these stores – is not this overstock from other brands and retailers. It's product that's made specifically for them. So they're not buying that much excess product from other brands and retailers. Even even a place like Nordstrom Rack, I know that it it seems that everything in there would have come from the Nordstrom stores. 
But the reality is it's a very small percentage of what you see in there. And it's such a small percentage that they'll have that stuff on special racks that says like from our stores. It's really, really small. Yeah, this actually really blew my mind when I I only, I feel like I only learned this like, I don't know, like five years ago and I had been working in fashion for like over five years at that time. Um, because similar to like what we talked about in the first episodes, like the cost targets, Actually, can you hear that? That's my cat. I might, I might, I might demote him. So yeah, I had been working in fashion for over five years. Uh, my my merch partner that started working with me, she had come from I think Ross, and she was the one that told me that they they make shoes. She was a shoe buyer, and she that they specifically make shoes for Ross because they have to hit. Hence, like the previous episode, these really aggressive cost targets. And so if she's trying to sell, I don't know, 20,000 or 30,000 pairs of Nikes and she needs to buy them for six bucks, she may not be able to get 20,000 pairs of liquidated Nikes from Nike for $6. So she's going to get, you know, maybe 5,000 or whatever she can get that's liquidated. And then she's going to go to Nike and say, can you just make me some shitty Nikes? <laughs> I like they call them shitty Nikes. Like that's the official industry term. I mean, that's what they are. If you have a little bit of a trained eye when you go into Ross and to be fair, look at the Nike specifically, because I think it's the easiest way to tell. But, and this also goes back to the previous episode, they just don't have as much make in them. Mm-hmm. And so you can see like, what's the lining where the sole, like the inside lining, like that, that like, part that kind of peels off sometimes or like yeah like the sole itself or even like the where the laces go are there rivets there and like or, or sorry grommets um just like all of the stuff or like even the laces themselves probably feel cheaper the shoe itself probably like feels kind of just either bulky or just off you can you can tell like or at least I mean I can tell but I would think that people can tell um and so <laughs> Yeah. So to Amanda's point, like they're you, they're really picky as they should be because they run good businesses. And probably the bulk of my time that I've been in fashion over the last five, 10 years, these guys have been going like gangbusters, especially since the recession off price and low price, like old Navy and stuff like that has been having a huge moment as there's a bigger and bigger incentive for low price goods these low price and off price retailers are just raking in all the cash. And so it's, it's just cray cray. And so, yeah, I mean, I remember at ModCloth, oh my God, trying to sell to, I don't know. I don't think we actually ever sold to Ross for some reason. It's not certainly due to lack of effort, but we never had a deal with them. We sold to TJ Maxx and they were so picky. It's hard. It's hard. I've tried a lot of times. And like, I get it. Like they want to sell the thing that's going to sell and they're picking from our leftovers of what's what already didn't sell. So of course they're going to be really selective about what they choose. And it was a whole thing, you know, of just like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And like what specific styles. And then, you know, even I think within the inventory that we had, they wanted sort of a specific size break. And then it was like, okay, they'd selected all this stuff and then they started negotiating the price. 
And I was like, that's such a good tactic because you've already, you've got me to put in all this work already. Oh yeah. And so now it's like, okay, I already like, you know, pulled the SKUs and did all this work to like do, like get your, you know, pot of, you know, pile of inventory ready for you. And they're like, okay, yeah. And so we'll give you like $5 and 50 cents per dress or something crazy like that. I mean, and what was crazy was that the $5 and 50 cents, I mean, everything, I'm, I don't even think we sold anything to them, certainly for more than $10. And I was doing dress, dresses was, I feel like what we were mostly selling. We were, we were like, okay, because we <laughs> couldn't, we, we still couldn't sell it. Right. Like, and so if you're, if, if the choice is $5 or $6 or $7 versus $0, $5 is like infinitely better. Right. And right, right. Or, or paying someone to take it away, then we're looking at negative dollars. So it's right. Right. Exactly. Totally. Totally. Um, but I just remember they were such a pain in the butt to deal with. And, but I also like, I remember them being so annoying and like, like so annoying to work with, but I also remember quietly being like, I get it. And I also respect this. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, me too. Like on the buying end, like I don't want to buy stuff that people have already rejected 10 times over. Like I'm I'm going to be picky about it. And they know what their customer totally. wants to buy. It's a totally different customer than you're dealing with at ModCloth or, you know, any other specialty retailer because this person might come from a different part of the country. They might not even buy from your brand very often. So you don't really know what they want either. I mean, I, I like trust. They kn- They know what's best for their customer. Well, and especially for us at ModCloth, ModCloth wasn't a well enough known brand that it was like a Nike, right? Like people that have like these, you know, super huge popular worldwide brands, like when you see Nike or even Michael Kors or I don't know, like whatever ubiquitous brands, like people, people, these off-price retailers, they recognize it, right? And so they're like, oh, this is a good deal because this brand has value. But if they've never even heard of ModCloth, there's, I mean... Like, no one cares. Like, we're not getting any credit for the brand. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really intriguing. It's a totally different industry. It's a different skill set. I I have massive respect for the people who work in the off-price industry. I think that it tends to get dismissed because it's not, like, aspirational, but it's so smart. Also, those people make really good money. Oh yeah, they make way more money than I was. I've made at any of my jobs, like because they're hustling and they're working really hard. And I have also heard anecdotally that the interview process, both for Ross and TJ Maxx, is like a marathon, super intense, rounds and rounds and rounds of interviews, um, and just like really, really cutthroat. Which I don't even know how to feel about that. I don't know how to feel about it either. But I have heard that once you are lucky enough to work there, it's an amazing job. So yeah, people don't leave. They don't leave. It's like, that's it. That's, that's where you're parked forever. So I don't know anybody who works in that industry, but I definitely have known a ton of people who've tried to work in that industry. I can think of a handful of people I know that have gone there over the years, um, including the often forgotten about uh, off price retailer, Burlington Coat Factory. Oh yes. Well, they're, they're headquartered here in Pennsylvania. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I guess I do know some people who work at Burlington. I totally forgot. <laughs> they have a, an office in LA, I think. Oh, uh, that would make sense because like Ross has their headquarters there. And I mean, that's a great city to be on the pavement. Like 
totally meeting people because there's totally. there's so much apparel industry there. You know, now we've we've talked about uh, selling stuff off to a discount retailer, an off price retailer, and like, what if they turned your stuff down and it didn't work out? So you're you're thinking, I'm or I'm guessing you're thinking, well, why don't you just donate it? And I mean, the answer to that is it's really complicated. Uh, Janine has has some experience trying to donate a lot of inventory. So I'm going to let her explain the challenges she's faced. So first of all, the idea of donating, I love. I have a heart for nonprofits and for service and things like that. And also for using inventory that like somebody, I, I like I'm confident somebody can get use out of this stuff. Also it's, it's brand new. It's not even like it's used clothing. It's not even like taking something to Goodwill or whatever. It's like brand new stuff. But I've tried to donate things over the years and it's much more difficult than you would think. First of all, most nonprofits don't have the capacity to store thousands and thousands of units. That's kind of the number one issue. So for example, I actually live directly kitty corner from an organization here that um, does outreach for women and children. And they're, they actually have a huge, huge building, but I tried to donate to them before and they were like, maybe we could take like 500 or a thousand units. Maybe I sent them 1500 at most, or maybe even 2,500, but I don't even think I could, I don't even think I sent that many because they just don't physically have the space to store it. Um, and most, I mean, and that's, that's a larger, that mm-hmm. organization is a larger organization in San Francisco that is like very well outfitted and like well-funded. But if you think of a lot of the like smaller nonprofits and stuff like that, they're operating out of really small locations. They just don't have the space to store this kind of stuff. And for me, from the planning side, once I get to the point where I need to donate stuff, Speaking of the like pile in the corner, the pile has gotten really big. Yeah. Like the pile is really, really big. In this instance specifically that I'm thinking of where I was trying to get rid of all of this excess inventory, I was trying to get rid of around 100,000 units. Oh my God. And so <laughs> trying to send even 1,500 or 2,500 units to a nonprofit, it doesn't even make a dent, right? And the other thing mm-hmm. is, is to think about is the way that in a retailer works, especially an e-commerce retailer, is that inventory moves out of the warehouse when a customer creates an order, adds it to cart, and then it gets you know paid for and shipped in a box, right? So in order for me to mm-hmm. allocate this inventory to and ship this inventory to these nonprofits, I would have to basically make something like a cart full of product. So I would have to add like go by product by size to create the list of product to send, um, send to these different places, which I did. I mean, and I probably sent, I probably sent, I don't know, 20, I would say between 10 to 20,000 units to these like smaller, smaller nonprofits, but it was so painful and so time consuming every time we would do that. So we have to make this like very specific list and and whatever. Um, We also did donate to Dress for Success at least once in a big way, but almost similar to TJ Maxx or, or to an off price, 
they are really specific with what they take, which like, again, mm-hmm. more power to them. Yeah. You know? They know what they know what's going to sell or what they need. Well, yeah, what they need. And, and similarly with any of this, they don't want to just take your crap either. Like, you know, they, they don't want like whatever's not good. They don't want it to just become their problem. And I actually, when you mentioned jumpsuits, that was like, I remember there was like the, like this jumpsuit in particular that I was trying to liquidate and it just wasn't like, I can't send that to dress for success. I mean, you're not going to wear like, well, most people aren't going to wear <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And you're not, um, you're not going to wear a gown with a cape on it either. So right, or a exactly. straw fedora. Yeah, so, totally, it's, you know, totally, totally. So I, I get why they were specific about what they would take. Um, and then even still, I think we donated like, I'm going to say like, maybe 50,000 units to them. Like it was a, it was a large amount. And even still as, I mean, Dress for Success is a very well-known organization. They're a national organization. Even still, we had to ship to them in like flows because they couldn't absorb all the inventory at once. Mm-hmm. So we had to like ship, maybe we, I don't know, maybe it was more than 50,000 units. I don't, I kind of remember each shipment being like 20 or 30,000 units. And I think we did three. Um, so we had to ship it over time because even they as this huge national organization whose whole reason for being is to like own and, and warehouse and distribute clothing, even they didn't have the capacity to absorb it all. Eventually, we ended up working with a kind of like a third party donation partner who, to be fair, these people are great. Plug for Good360 great partner and the way they work is they have huge warehouses and they will take more or less whatever you have they store it in their warehouse and then any nonprofit or or whatever can shop their inventory for free basically or for a really small price i forget and so they basically are like a a Costco <laughs> where they just have these huge warehouses and then um, the nonprofits come to them and take the inventory from them. So they're, they're not the end user of it, but they were a great partner for us because they could take large shipments of inventory. And so it's just, it's a lot more, it's a lot more chaotic. And then the other thing that Amanda kind of mentioned a couple of times is that it costs money for us to ship it, right. For us to even, for us to pack it and ship it, we have to pay those employees the hourly wage to process it. Mm-hmm. And then we have to ship the inventory out of the warehouse to whatever location. And to be honest, at this point, we were just happy to get rid of it. We were like, whatever. Bye, Felicia. Like, I don't care how much it costs me to mail it to you. Like, I just want it gone at this point. And I will say, like, uh, plus one for my cloth, we did talk about incinerating things at one period of time because it was just like what are we going to do with all of this and there was just a general consensus that like we just won't do that that's awesome we'd rather pay money to ship it to Timbuktu or where you know wherever these different places were to these I mean and literally any nonprofit that wanted and would accept (laughs) like accept donations we would give it to them you know just because it was like anybody that wants it can have it but it was it was an incredibly time consuming and painful process. And it we didn't even it took I actually only got hooked up with Good360 through a partner from Walmart. Because I was talking to one of my 
business partners at Walmart. And I was like, Hey, like we have this excess inventory. Do you have any ideas? You know, cause I figured Walmart must have had excess inventory at some point. And somehow I think they were the ones that passed on to me this, this name of good 360. And I had the woman that I worked with there. She was great. Um, and we always had just a really good relationship with them. So they were great, but they weren't even, they weren't even really like a true nonprofit in that way. <laughs> like they were just like a, a middleman. My family were all avid thrift shoppers. It's like, that's our idea of a good time on a Saturday. And I have noticed in certain thrift stores, certain brands appearing in a much larger way, like Goodwill, it seems like it has a partnership with Target. And so you find a lot of brand new Target stuff and not just clothing, but like home goods. I one time bought a really incredible pair of sewing scissors there (laughs) that were from Target and were still in the package. So they have a lot of stuff. And like I've seen at Salvation Army, they have a lot of stuff from Zara. Like they will have an entire Zara aisle. Interesting. Yeah. I do think that some of these retailers are making it work. But once again, like Salvation Army and Goodwill are, I mean, they're massive, they're massive mm-hmm. organizations. And so they can probably absorb a lot more inventory. Like I would say in a lot of cities, there's probably just as many Goodwills as Target stores. So it kind of seems like the scale is a little bit more in line to absorb that stuff. In the past, you know, a lot of product that was donated both on a corporate level and like personal, like you take your bag of stuff to the Goodwill, a lot of this stuff would actually leave the country and it would go to Africa or Latin America, yeah. South America, and even some countries in Asia. But actually in the last few years, a number of African countries like Kenya and Uganda have actually banned the import of secondhand clothing from the West. I mean, one, because they were just being bombarded with it as we are throwing away 70 pounds of clothes every year. And on top of that, it was suppressing their own clothing and textile industry. Like basically there was no room to make their own stuff and sell it because right. all of our stuff was coming over there. So that has also sort of stopped the flow of this excess inventory to another place. And I think that probably that correlates to an increase in this destruction because the reality is there's just too much stuff in general. There's not enough people in the world to absorb all this stuff because we keep making more of it on top of everything else. So some brands are beginning to experiment with this idea of selling unsold merchandise uh, via resale sites like ThreadUp, Poshmark, and eBay. And I see it here and there. I've even worked in organizations where we've talked about doing that, but it's it's a lot of work for a tiny crumb of sales. It also reaches a point where you're like, I don't know if we're really making back right. any, any of the costs here at the end of the right. day. So... <laughs> As you can see, there aren't a lot of options there when you have all this extra stuff. And going back to H&M, when you have $4 billion worth of clothing, like what are you going to do? No one can take that. That's just the scale of that is so massive. So now you got to think about like, okay, we just have to destroy this stuff. Like this is it. This is the end of the line. There's nowhere for it to go. So incineration, as we've talked about, is very popular. Sure, it can be used to generate electricity. And I guess that mitigates some of the damage and loss there. But what about all the carbon that's being released from burning, right? So that's that's bad. And even the carbon emissions of the trucks that have to drive all the stuff to the incineration factory. And then, you know, we've talked about this. We're going to talk about this all the time. But what about all the synthetic blends in those clothes? Because remember, that's plastic. You really shouldn't be burning plastic. And 
I, based on my experience of shopping at H&M, it would seem that a substantial portion of that $4 billion worth of clothing they burned would be synthetic. And then, of course, you know, there's a lot of cheaper trims in there, like zippers and buttons that are also plastic. So they have to be pulled out by hand before they can be burned or even recycled. So that's another way that the company has to spend some more money to deal with this problem. And there is there is a growing industry in recycling fibers, so actually like deconstructing the fabric and turning it into a new fabric, but it's still in its really early stages. And we'll talk about that on a future episode because I have done some consulting work on projects involving this fiber-to-fiber fiber recycling, but it's not widespread. It's really expensive, and only a couple of companies are really developing this right now. Some of the fabric from these unsold garments or donated garments that we donate uh, can find a second life in industrial products like insulation, but also like we only need so much insulation in the world, so that's that's not a fix either. And some of the cheaper trims can go directly to the recycling factory and be turned into more water bottles or something like that. But once again, then we're using energy and we're driving it there. And so we're just increasing the carbon footprint of this product that might already have like a really high carbon footprint because it came on a plane to the United States or something like that. So just it's just like this excess becomes an excess in all these other areas of our lives where it's affecting us more than just there's a big pile of clothes being burned it's it's it affects the planet on a much larger scale yeah and i think that just it helps me to remember that you know clothing really is something that people consume and it's you you wear it one day and then you're you know yeah you're over it the next day um, and I think it's just, I mean, I'm, I try to be more mindful, but it's hard because we just live in this culture where, you know, we make ourselves happy or we're, you know, encouraged to just like purchase something new all the time. Um, and like, Ooh, this is fun. And Oh, like this, I got it on sale or, you know, it's only $20, like cheap and cheerful, all of that kind of thing really encourages us to buy more. And when we buy more, we are using more and we're like a conveyor belt of like something comes in, something goes out. Right. And you're just like, you're just, you're consuming so much in like, in a weird way, you're like pooping out clothing too, you know, Mm -hmm, like the more mm -hmm. you buy, the like the more you like get rid of because you really just can't wear it all, you know? And as soon as you have like something else that you like better or fits better or whatever the like the other thing that you had that was perfectly good like has just lost its luster right and these businesses wouldn't still be around if we didn't consume all this stuff right and it, and and the the reason we can consume it all is because it's made cheaply and it's just yeah i mean i think back to the previous episode where you where we started off by saying that like the cost of things however many like 20 or 30 years ago prices have risen however much over that time, but you're still paying the same for your pair of jeans. And the fact is that like all this stuff is produced so cheaply that everyone, everyone in like everyone can consume fast fashion all of the time. And it just literally creates a lot of trash, you know? It literally does. And 
something I had forgotten to bring up earlier, but I was reading in my investigation of all these like excess inventory issues, is that this cycle that retail in general has gotten into of these like deep, deep, deep discounts has devalued clothing so much to us psychologically that people are buying stuff that they, because it's on sale, because it's a hot deal. And sometimes half of it is the rewarding feeling you get of getting a hot deal but they like people aren't even wearing these clothes that they there there's been some studies there that speculate that these clothes go to goodwill almost instantaneously right like because you're like oh this i got this straw fedora for two bucks like who cares if i wear it once and right. throw it out but that's like not right. how we should right. look right. at right. it because these, these items aren't meant to be disposable but yet Treat we them treat them as disposal i'm like can't get that image of pooping out clothes <laughs> out of my brain like it's adorable though because you're like on a conveyor belt and you're just like pooping out it's adorable poops but they're clothes and i think i think that's where the crux of it all lies is we treat clothes as something sort of transitory in our life like they're just in and out totally totally and like i i was thinking about like how do I personally end up with stuff that I don't want anymore or that I don't wear? And I'm, I was like mentally sort of like rifling through my closet and like looking at things and being, you know, the things I haven't worn in however long. And like, there's all different kinds of reasons why we were like, Oh, like, no, this doesn't really fit well, or it's itchy. It's not comfortable. Yeah. I bought it on sale. It was a cheap thrill, you know, whatever it got damaged. It, it's stained it's worn out it's pilled it doesn't fit anymore because i changed my shape or whatever mm-hmm. it's something i never returned or it could be just something you forgot about oh happens to me all the time my stuff is so stuffed in there and you're like oh i remember yeah, you we had so many good times <laughs> i still love yeah. you <laughs> you know i haven't you know but i haven't worn it in however long or i mean and i i do think i'm super guilty of this but like i buy something new that i like better i was actually just putting on some athleisure this morning, some leggings and like digging through my like, you know, basket of leggings. And I like pulled out a pair and I was like, Oh, I forgot about you. I love you. You know, but I've been wearing these other ones more lately because I like them more and there's nothing wrong with the ones that I put on today. There's just, I have other ones that I like better. So I just haven't worn these ones as much. Right. Uh, And so yeah, when we were doing the notes for this episode, I was just, you know, like, how, how can we avoid this? You know, how can we, what can we do to avoid acquiring things, you know, that we don't want to wear anymore? And I don't, I don't know that I have, you know, any excellent (laughs) words of wisdom besides just being more mindful when you purchase something of like, you know, is this something I really want to have for a long time? Is this something I feel like I'm going to get a lot of wears out of, you know, is this, do I already have something in my closet that serves the same end juice? And one of my girlfriends will tease me because I, I have a lot of denim jackets. <laughs> I, I can see that about you. That doesn't oh surprise God. me. You're that girl. I have, You're- I think I have less than 10 denim jackets. Oh, less than 10. <laughs> but I certainly probably have more than five. And I can't remember when it, whenever it was recently, but it, my this particular friend was like down visiting me and she had a really cute denim jacket on. And I was like, where did you get that? <laughs> and she was like, I'm not telling you because you don't need it. And I was like, this one is different <laughs> than my other ones. But yeah, I mean, trying to be mindful about when you're when 
when you bring anything into your home, but like when you bring an item into the home, like what is something else leaving or like, do you really need this item? You know? And it's hard because like, I mean, Amanda and I know are both guilty AF of this, but like shopping is fun. It is. It's a, it's a hobby. It's totally. But I think it's also important to be mindful that like with it comes waste and to just consider that. It does. And I I do not want anybody to immediately go into their bedroom, open their closet and throw out all of their fast fashion for one. Please, please don't do that. And I almost feel like, you know, we've touched on this before, like, hey, fast fashion is cheap. Sometimes you don't have a lot of money to spend on clothes. And so buy it, right? But just like, don't buy a hundred of it. Don't fill your closet and then another closet and then like a storage unit and some bins under your bed with fast fashion. Like really think it through. And I mean, I'm so guilty of this, have been way guilty of this in the past. We're like, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to go online and buy myself some stuff, right? Or like, there have been times in my life where it seemed like the only remote level of joy I could get was like buying shit. I mean, we're all there. It's hardwired into us. Like when I was a kid, every weekend I would go to the mall with my grandma and we would buy things. You know, it's like a social thing and it's so deeply hardwired into our psyche. But totally, we need to stop, take a breath and think about it. I've like for the past couple of years, I've been able to control myself a lot more by saying, okay, I really like this thing that I saw online, I'm going to bookmark it and I'm going to think about it for a week and I'll come back. And if I'm still convinced on it, then I'll buy it. And you know what? I almost never end up buying it. It's like so, it's so strange. You know, it's like one easy trick not to buy things. It's, it works. So, okay. You, you have excess inventory in your own house. We all do. What are you going to do with it? I thought we could talk about that. The first thing you should not do is throw it in the trash and then put it out in the dumpster for your apartment building. Please don't do that uh, because a lot of a lot of textiles are recyclable or reusable in a number of ways, right? So one is you could donate it to Goodwill or some other charity. Janine made a note in here and she's so right. Like we don't know how much of that stuff is actually resold or is, is trash because it's really complex, but I have read... I'm pulling this number off the top of my head, but I just read it yesterday, so I think I'm accurate. In California alone, Goodwill sends about 80 million pounds of clothes to the landfill every year because they they don't they're getting way more stuff than they need, and some of it's not useful. Yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing too is I mean, anyone who's donated anything to Goodwill or Salvation Army or any of the other secondhand stores, um, Goodwill I think of in particular just because they're so big. When you drop things off there, you're like, "Ah!" like, (laughs) what's happening, you know? And like, it just goes into this like pile that just looks like a dumpster, basically. And I, I use Goodwill as a last resort, not because, not, well, not only because I don't get any money for it. And I try to, I try to at least sell things or, or whatever before I donate them to recoup some of the costs on my part, but also because it just looks like putting it in the trash and, you know, people just throw things and whatever. And you're like, okay, what are the odds that this thing that I'm donating is actually going to make itself onto a hanger in a store in a rack for five bucks so that someone that needs, you know, a coral blazer can, you know, can buy it or whatever, you know? And so every time like I like donate stuff there, I'm always like, well, 
hope that goes well. Like, you know, like, like, see you never, you know, like I have no idea what's going to happen. Like, you know, you, like, I just have no idea what's going to happen to it. But I also am like, I don't have any use for this stuff anymore. And I've like tried all my other means to like, um, to, you know, to get rid of it. But I, yeah, I just definitely feel like it's like a last resort. Totally. And I would say like maybe 10 years ago, I watched a documentary that was like, revealed what happens to all the stuff we donate to the Goodwill. And I would assume that probably a lot has changed in the past 10 years as the way we've consumed has spiraled out of control. But even then, you know, if there was enough manpower to do it, people would sort through everything. But once again, there generally was not. So they would sort through as much as they could and kind of identify like, what were they going to sell on their own? And that would go into one pile. Uh, what stuff could be recycled into other textile uses like rugs. You can totally buy a rug. A lot of these like rag yeah. rugs you buy are actually made of old fabrics and textiles that are just ripped up and oh. uh, recycled. Uh, some of it is turned into like industrial rags. Uh, there's like, like I was talking about earlier, insulation. And at that point, 10 years ago, a lot of it, if it was remotely salvageable, would would ship over to Africa. Like there's just like boatloads yeah. of it. Like the containers just full of like palleted t-shirts and whatnot. But even then, a lot of stuff was just ultimately ending up at the landfill either because it wasn't useful anymore, or it was something that no one would buy used, like maybe panties, <laughs> um, right. or it just like couldn't even get to it. And I'm assuming that now it's probably even worse that the even more of a substantial chunk is just going directly to the landfill because they can't get to it. So it seems like donating to Goodwill maybe should be your last resort. I don't know. Like what if you were like going to donate to a woman's shelter or something? Like what's the problem there? So what's crazy and like I will say it's not every place that I attempt to donate to, but actually the the same women's shelter that's like across the street from me, kind of funny, kind of not. They only take brand new clothes because they can get such good stuff from retailers. And I will say being in San Francisco, there's a lot of big, um, big retailers mm -hmm. here. Gap, you know, Old Navy, Banana, Levi's, Gymboree. Like there's, there's a lot of like larger re retailers here. So they get so many donations from those retailers of brand new product that they don't even accept anything that's secondhand anymore. <laughs> Which is crazy. Wow. I mean, once again, it's because everybody's making too much inventory. Right. Right. And so Oof. it's awesome for the women in that shelter because they get brand new stuff. And even if you think of like Dress for Success, like actually I think Dress for Success accepts, yeah, they accept secondhand stuff. But, you know, I know that we donated so much stuff to them. Like I'm sure other retailers are also donating to them. Like, so many retailers are trying to offload stuff to nonprofits that like they're, if, especially if they're larger organizations, they just don't even accept um, secondhand things anymore, which is great for the clients that they serve. <laughs> Somewhat frustrating when you're like, but what do I do with this? Like, this is still good. You know, like this still has life in it. Right. Uh, I feel like my first, well, Actually, yeah. Usually my first sort of means of getting rid of stuff is that I usually do a clothing swap with mm -hmm. girlfriends, which oftentimes doesn't end up with me leaving with zero items. Like if I'm trying to get rid of things, I often still come home with things too. Right. Um, but it's fun. And like, I love, I, I have one girlfriend in particular that she's just, um, she never buys clothes. 
and actually one of my sisters too, like almost never buys clothes. And so they both love getting things secondhand. So I obviously love to see something that I bought go to a friend or a friend of a friend or something like that before. And actually it was kind of funny. I feel like I sort of started this at Mod Cloth and then other people sort of started doing it, but I would bring my stuff that I was going to get rid of, I would bring it to work. Yes. That's a great idea. Because I was like, whatever. Like, I don't like, who cares that this is like my like cast offs or whatever, like (laughs) maybe somebody else wants it. And I worked with almost like all women. So I was just like, whatever, like here, like I'm going to, here's two big bags of stuff that I'm going to get rid of, like go through it, take whatever you want. I would much rather it go to somebody that's actually going to use it or wear it before that's like a friend of mine or part of my, you know, part of like my family or whatever before I get rid of it. So I feel like clothing swap or just like giving things away to friends and family or like hand-me-downs to like I have two little nieces. Sometimes I give them stuff, although like to be fair, they almost never want it. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it is. I actually have a couple of pairs of jeans that I think they they might wear. And then I, I am a huge fan of the resale market. So Crossroads or Buffalo Exchange or whatever. I do sell some stuff on Poshmark. I'm not as good about selling things on Poshmark as I could be just because it's kind of time consuming to like take the photos and upload everything and then like wait for it to sell Mm -hmm. and whatever. I I like the instant gratification that comes from Crossroads and Buffalo Exchange. And I actually have pretty good luck at those places and getting them to buy, feeling like when I go there that they buy a decent amount of stuff that it's worth it for me. But I've also heard from many people that they just have bad experiences at those places. So you have to curate what you take in there, right? Like I, I could probably write a book about how to get people to buy your used clothes. <laughs> Cause I, I mean, I've been like a poor hipster more of my life than I haven't. So I've always had to be like, I got to get rid of some clothes if I'm going to get my car fixed or something. And so I always look at the signs they have up front. You know, there's always like a chalkboard that's like, here's what we're buying. And I make sure I edit down to that. I also make sure that I like dress really cute when I go in because I think that helps. <laughs> in Portland, especially in the early aughts when everyone was really poor, uh, but everyone was really stylish, like this is how we all lived. Yeah. Probably everything that I ever bought at Buffalo Exchange, which is where I bought most of my clothes, had been worn by three other people around town that I didn't know or did know. In fact, one time I showed up at a party in a dress, a girl asked me, did you get that at Buffalo Exchange. And I was like, yeah, just the other day. And she's like, oh yeah, I sold it there last week. Oh my God. It wasn't embarrassing. It was like, cool. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of those places. And I also, although I don't really sell at Poshmark because it's too much of a pain in the butt for me, I am a huge Poshmark customer. Um, I love Poshmark. <laughs> No, me too. And I, I love Depop. I feel like Depop is like – like my daughter is like on Depop constantly. Oh, like yeah. It's harder to sell stuff on Depop because there's so much back and forth and people being sketchy and indecisive. But once again, it's a really great resource. And worst case scenario, ThreadUp is good too. Only if you're like, I want to get rid of my stuff. I don't want to take it to the goodwill. I want there to have a higher chance that this is going to be worn by someone. Right. And so you're going to get – pennies for what you send them but you can literally just box it up they give you a label you send it to them and like maybe you'll get a credit towards something and maybe you won't but I, I I feel like there's so many other options out there for how to move your clothes out of your life you just have to remember that like just because you made all that room in your closet doesn't mean you should fill it right back up <laughs> that's the hard part right 
I will say one of one of my favorite, 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 favorite options for getting rid of stuff is the good old fashioned yard sale. And oh my god, me too. My mom and I, we are yard sale people. Yard sale runs deep, deep in my veins. <laughs> there is in internal under my skin is a is a fanny pack loaded with single dollar bills and quarters <laughs> that is just i mean the yard sale is like some of my like best memories from childhood is our i lived on a cul-de-sac and we would do our all of our neighbors we would do like a yard sale once once a year and whew, mm-hmm. so much fun but one of the reasons i love doing yard sale besides for the fact that Almost every time I do one, I probably make at least a few hundred bucks. Totally. Is that people buy it. And then like, and then they have it and, you know, and like I would sell all my clothes, like I would sell stuff for like one to $3. Right. And so, which is mm-hmm. to be fair, even cheaper than the Goodwill. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I feel like whoever's buying it, like they're getting a good deal. I'm getting a good deal. And this stuff isn't going into the trash. Right. And like, who knows how much they wear it um, or whatever, but at least someone's taking it and they're they're getting it for a really good price for them and it's not going to the trash. One of my favorite yard sale stories was I was I must have been in college maybe at this point. Yeah, I think I was in college and I was, you know, home for the summer doing a yard sale while I was at home. And I, you know, was putting all my stuff out to sell and I was like going through all my stuff to like what, you know, what what can I get rid of? And I had like a handful, maybe like five or six bras that I just wasn't wearing anymore. And they were like nicer bras, Victoria's Secret or like other places where I had, you know, paid, you know, at least 30 bucks for these things. Of course, they were very size specific, but I was like, whatever, like, I'm not going to wear these anymore. I'm going to throw them out anyways, or like get rid of them anyways. So like may as well put them out in the yard sale. And my dad actually was like, he told me after the fact that he was like embarrassed that I put those out because he he was like, obviously my dad doesn't wear a bra, but he was like, he said he felt like it was like I was selling used underwear. (laughs) And so he was like, kind of like weirded out and like kind of embarrassed and like, kind of like, like just confused and like grossed out by the fact that I was like trying to sell these bras and I'm not even joking. Like I sold them for probably three, five, seven dollars, depending on like how expensive they were. Those wow. things flew like hotcakes. They were like the first things yeah. to sell out. Wow. Isn't that I mean and like <laughs> who would have known? <laughs> I mean, there you go, guys. Don't hold back on your bras. And you know what? I mean, I will say like bras are expensive. Bras are expensive. So I would be stoked if I went to a yard sale and there were bras in my size that I, like were what I was into, I would 100% buy them. Well, and at the time I was wearing a 34B, which I feel like is a very mainstream size or just like mm-hmm. a lot of people can wear that size. Like if it's a little, like if it's a little too tight, you can like adjust it more. If it's a little too small, you can like adjust it more, you know, like whatever. I felt like it was a pretty ubiquitous uh, size or whatever, but I just remember personally being shocked that they sold out and then my dad when he saw that they all sold he was like even more <laughs> like shocked and then he he only told me after the fact that he was embarrassed that I had put them out but then he was like oh when they all sold out I was like I guess it's fine <laughs> <'Cause> everybody- <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, another thing that's sort of, uh, the, the kissing cousin of the yard sale that I think is a really great thing to do with your extra, your excess inventory is a good old fashioned free bin out on the sidewalk. Like I, oh yeah, I've had stuff that I was like, uh, I just like, don't, I don't know if the Goodwill is going to take this and right, it's right. definitely not sellable at like, you know, Crossroads or Buffalo Exchange. I'm just going to put it outside in this box and see what happens. And like, I remember one time I had this really cute uh, purse. It just needed a little bit of repair. And it was a little, like some of the trims were kind of chipped. And I was like, well, no one's going to buy this from right. me at like at, at anywhere really. And I put it outside and someone swooped it up immediately. And I saw that woman wearing that bag all over the neighborhood for like the next two years. So oh. I think like uh, – that's so great. I know. I know. And I usually, I mean, I think it's like a really common practice in Portland to put out a box of free stuff when you move, right? It's super common here in San Francisco. Not even just when you move, just like people put free stuff out on the street all the time. Yeah, I do that too. And you know what? Someone yeah. always takes it. I mean, oh yeah. if they don't, fine, you tried. But like, let's do everything we can to not throw things away. And totally. I mean, I have my laundry hamper I found on the street well more than 10 years ago and it has moved all over the country with me. Like it's not less valuable to people just because they found it either. In fact, it becomes almost more valuable. I think you're like, Oh my God, what a treasure. I totally agree. And actually recently I was, my apartment building is like, um, six, six little flats, like in a row. So we, we all share for these six apartments, we all share the same trash cans. And so I was going out to the trash bins and I was going to put something in the recycling. And this is not a story we need to get into in depth, but someone, someone who lives in these six buildings, and I know almost everyone that lives here, someone is very bad at putting their trash into the right bins. They don't recycle. They just put shit, whatever, in whatever bins. And it drives me up the wall. Oh. Bye. And there were clothes in there. Among other things. That's what I call wishful recycling. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I see what your thought process was here, but this does not belong here. And this, to be fair, this was during COVID. And so my, my, my roommate actually scolded me for taking these items. Let's <laughs> 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 get a disease from them. But I took everything out of the bin and I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to wash all of this. And I was like, I'm going to wash all of it. And then I'll just take it to Goodwill. Like, because you just shouldn't throw things away like that. Like, it's just right, crazy. Right. And it was like a pair of like perfectly fine scrubs, which probably now everybody's going to say had COVID all over them. But like then like a flannel, like some some pajama pants, and then two <laughs> pairs of jeans, a pair of like vintage Wranglers, and then maybe a pair of Levi's. What? This is appalling. I'm not even shitting you. When I took those bad boys out of the dryer, I was like, these are my size. What? And I put both of them fit. I put both of them. Oh my gosh. And so of course, this is not like giving that, like I was bringing more things into the house, which I try not to do, but I was like, bro, I am keeping these jeans. So I was like, yeah, just wash them. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I washed them anyways because I was like, I'm going to wash this stuff before I take it to Goodwill and because it came out of the trash, like the literal trash. But I was just like, oh, two new pairs of jeans for me. And I figured at least one of them I would cut into shorts. I actually haven't cut either of them into shorts yet. But I was just like, whatever, I'm keeping these. These are my size. 
Wow. So there you go, guys. I mean, this this clothing in the trash story had a happy ending, but like, don't put stuff in the trash can or the recycling bin. Just put it out in a box yes. and like someone, your trash is someone else's treasure almost always. Totally. Once again, it's all about taking that like extra moment to think about what's next. Like I think this epidemic of Marie Kondoing your life has led to even more stuff going on the trash. Yeah. Even if our apartments seem empty and actually probably everybody's been filling them up with uh, cheer up purchases during quarantine. So all that work was undone anyway. Take that extra moment to think about like, what could I do with this? Who might want this? And also before you buy it, do I need it? Right. And like, I I am so guilty of like the like, you know, emotional purchase or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I have been, you know, yeah, and also in my own boredom right now, like shopping or whatever. And I like, I will put things like on hold and be like, do I really need this? And actually, there's something I just bought a new bra, whatever. First of all, it came, it wasn't exactly the quality that I wanted. But I was also like, fuck it, I am returning this. Like, I don't need this. Like, I've seen Mm -hmm. it. I've like, I bought it. I thought I needed it. I've now received it in person. It's not the greatest quality that I wanted anyways. I don't need this. I'm sending this back. Even though this like, I only spent like $15 on it. Who cares if I get my $15 back? But like, more like, I don't need this. Like, I don't need this. Mm-hmm. I don't need this. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really easy when brands are like 80% off sale, which is going to happen a lot in the next few months as brands try to deal with their excess inventory. Don't load up your cart with things you don't need just because it's so thrilling to see it 80% off. Like, I know it's hard. I've been there. I'm the person who's like, oh my God, it's Cyber Monday. What are the deals going to be today? Like, I got to check all my sites and figure it out. Like, don't do that. You know what? Shopping should not be a hobby anymore. If someone tells you shopping is their interest, you should give them a hard look. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Or I think too, it's it's good to be like, sometimes you do need something, right? Right. And you can be smart. Let me tell you something I I recently needed, and I'll use need with an asterisk, but I will still define this as something that I legitimately wanted and had use for. I wanted some bike shorts. I'm I'm guilty of the bike short trend. Oh no, I'm wearing some right now. It's fine. It's fine. I'm wearing some. But like, whatever. I was like, I'm going to buy a pair. I think I ended up with two pairs, but I'm like, I will buy a pair of bike shorts and like I will consider this purchase I will shop around I actually did try really hard to find them on Poshmark and I couldn't find them on Poshmark in the size and color that I wanted but um I tried really hard to find them on Poshmark first or like other like Depop or even eBay like whatever for used clothes trade Z's another one couldn't find them so I ended up buying them from a retailer but I was like this was a considered purchase. I'm really happy with them. I did pay full price for them, which I feel guilty about, but I did pay full price. I wanted them. I really wanted them, you know? And like, I was like, whatever. I It was a considered purchase. I'm really happy with them. I'll wear them. They will be my bike shorts of 2020 and whatever. You can still want something. Just consider it, you know, <laughs> instead of, yeah, 
just mindlessly filling a card or whatever or buying all this stuff. There's nothing wrong with buying things. And sometimes, you know what? Sometimes the only thing that is going to make you feel better is to buy something. Like, I get it. We've all been there. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, we buy things for all kinds of reasons. Totally. I would just ask you to just think about it a little bit harder before you hit the purchase button. That's all. And maybe return it. <laughs> yes. So I am – you can still change your mind. If it does not 100% spark joy when you try it on at home, fucking get rid of it. Like, I just send it back. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't help with these brands with their huge inventory loads. But you know what? Hopefully, if we change our behavior, they're going to be forced to change their behavior. Slowly it's but surely totally. over time. Hopefully, the It starts with us. Yeah. It starts with us. Yeah. I hate when as an individual, I feel like the burden of carbon emissions is on me because ultimately me taking the bus to work versus driving doesn't is, is like not even a drop in the bucket. It's so small. But I do think when it comes to how we spend our money and the things we buy, I do think that that is much more impactful than anything else we can totally. do. Totally. 100% agree. Do you have any final thoughts, Janine? No. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you. Go to yard sale, go to yard sales, yes. buy things at yard sales and put out a free box. Have yard sales, wear a mask, give out free hand sanitizer, <laughs> uh, put out a free box. I I agree on all of those things. I I'm sad to be missing yard sale season right now. Well, thank you so much, Janine. I know you're going to be back again because we I think we already came up with an idea for an episode while we were recording this. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was great to talk to you about this. If you, the listeners, have any questions or suggestions about what we can do with our own excess inventory or your own experiences with that, please reach out. Thank you. Bye. You know what? I miss Janine already. <sighs> Come back, Janine. As promised, I'm here to talk more about the destruction of excess inventory by incinerating, shredding, smashing, whatever. I'm sure there's all kinds of innovative ways to break things. I'm going to start by saying that it's a lot more widespread than it seems. During my conversation with Janine, I mentioned Burberry. It's important to add that in the same year that the world found out that Burberry was incinerating millions and millions of dollars in unsold inventory... They also signed on to Making Fashion Circular, an initiative to design waste out of fashion and keep resources in circulation. It's, it's a whole initiative about circular fashion, right? Well, on the surface, Burberry seemed like a great sustainability-minded brand. I mean, like, sign me up, right? This is the kind of brand we want to support. But incinerating your inventory, it's the antithesis of circular fashion. Okay, well, here's the thing. Technically... Burberry had not tried to hide its use of incineration, which was listed in its 2017-2018 annual report under finished goods physically destroyed during the year. But they are under no requirement to disclose this practice publicly, and neither is any other brand. So we can only assume that it is much more widespread than we can imagine, right? As I mentioned earlier, some luxury brands do this, in fact, it seems like maybe most of them, to keep things desirable by keeping less desirable products out of circulation. Okay, I get that. But also keeping it out of the hands of the poors. Yes, the poor people. In the luxury world, the definition of 
poor is a lot different than what you might think of as poor. Now, if you can pick up a note of disgust in my voice, it's because, to be honest, I have always hated luxury brands. Yeah, I'm sure the quality of a Chanel bag is better than that of a bag at Forever 21. I won't argue with you about that. But I hate this idea of objects, owning objects, differentiating class. I hate the idea of objects that make some people more special and more important than others. And as a person who grew up poor, I hate that I'm expected to aspire to owning these luxury items because then I too will finally be unpoor and therefore worthy of respect. Because let's be honest, an asshole is an asshole regardless of the bag they are carrying. Okay, here's another bad story about a luxury brand. Over the two years of 2017 and 2018, Cartier owner Richemont bought back about $575 million worth of watches from retail partners. Why? To avoid having the timepieces sold more cheaply on the gray market of unauthorized retailers, as in getting it into the hands of more people who might have less money. Once again, this idea of like destroying the desirability of the product. Most of these watches were destroyed. And the parts were recycled. And yeah, great. Great that they recycled the stuff, I guess. But still, there was energy involved in making the watches in the first place and then recycling them. All of that time and energy was wasted. There's something ironic, it's occurring to me right now, about a watch company wasting time. (laughs) Your dad will like that joke. Repeat it to him. There's also a lot of speculation slash rumors that luxury brands like Louis Vuitton are destroying top-selling items in order to avoid tax and duty penalties. Okay, as much as I hate the luxury brands, I have to tell you that this practice also extends to the more mass brands. Nike was the subject of a New York Times article in 2017 that alleged the company slashed clothing and shoes to render them unwearable before disposing of them. I mean, WTF. There were also reports of Eddie Bauer stores in New York City cutting up unsold coats and blankets and then throwing them out in the trash, dot, 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 during the middle of winter. (laughs) Eddie Bauer officially is saying that they don't normally do that and that was a one-off. I don't care. They are destroying products somewhere, right? And I can say that because as I combed Reddit and the rest of the internet for tales of destruction, I found stories from former employees of almost every retailer I could think of. Tales of shredding futon mattresses and then breaking apart the frames with a crowbar, smashing unsold glasses and candles with hammers, ripping apart piles of unsold underwear, and on and on. And all of these destroyed, unworn, unpurchased items were then tossed into the dumpster to go to the landfill. To be fair, as I mentioned earlier, fabric recycling is still a work in progress. And curbing all of this waste really requires the law to step in with curbs on retailers and manufacturers, right? France is actually leading the way. New regulations mean that fashion producers must take responsibility for the end of life of the clothing they push into the market, usually by supporting and participating in collecting and recycling programs. Other laws, and this is pretty cool, they try to limit the amount of certain fibers that can be used by each brand, essentially reducing the use of polyester or at least, you know, keeping it at a certain level. And making recycling a lot easier because too much variety in fibers makes recycling much more difficult. But guess what, friends? This all begins with us. I bet you're waiting for me to say that, right? By continuing to prop up these businesses that continue to make more and more stuff, 
while also behaving irresponsibly, we're enabling them to continue their bad behavior. Remember, we're all buying twice as much stuff as we did in the year 2000, and we're wearing it a lot less. As I've said, and I will continue to say, your money is as powerful as your vote. So start voting against this machine that makes more and more and more clothing that we don't need. Literally, I mean literally, more clothing than we will ever be able to wear. Don't give these companies your money. Buy less, buy things that will last, and wear your stuff a lot longer. Resist the temptation of deals, deals, deals. And don't be afraid to ask your favorite brand or store what they are doing with their excess inventory. If you do, let me know what they say. Thanks again for listening to Close Horse. Please share your thoughts, ideas, and knowledge with us. You can email at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram at closehorsepodcast. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating. And if you're feeling really spicy, a review on Apple Podcasts. Ratings push us up the charts and into people's suggested listens. Please share with a friend. I love, 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 love seeing all of you giving us shout outs on Instagram. It's the best thing every time it happens. Also, if you need more podcast content or you just can't get enough of my voice, I have a new podcast out called The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. You'll remember her from our e-commerce episodes. The Department is about trends and taste, so it's a little lighter than Close Horse. Probably a little bit more fun, a lot more fun. <sighs> Thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our theme music and audio support, even if he's always annoyed that I don't know any keyboard shortcuts. Sorry, guys. Didn't learn that in art school. Bye. Bye. <laughs>